0: Thank you so much. If
1: you would offer me like a stick of cotton candy or like a a corn dog at the fair, I'd totally choose the cotton candy 10 times out of 10 because frankly, if I have to, I can actually burn that glucose, right? I, I could go out and exercise. I could actually burn that sugar and it's gonna not cause as much of an effect as... The rancid oils in something like a fried food, like a right. corn dog, because those are going to contribute to the fatty acids that comprise my cell membranes for the next few months, right. and right. Uh, you know, and also contribute to some of the inflammatory processes that we talked about, and so. Yeah. I mean, if, if you had to choose you know, the, the lesser of two evils, vegetable oil versus sugar, it'd certainly be sugar. Welcome
0: back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class Scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hey, Bettys. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. I do have a treat for you this week. I sat down to speak with Ben Greenfield. He, for those of you that don't know him, he is an ex-bodybuilder, Ironman triathlete, obstacle course racer, human performance consultant, author of 13 books. Damn. 13 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Beyond Training. He has been named America's top personal trainer and one of the top 100 most influential people in health and fitness. Now, of course, we are going to talk all about inflammation, how to reduce it with diet changes. So we geek out really hard here on a subject matter that is very near and dear to my heart. So we talk about fat loss, we talk about fasting, we talk about cardio, we talk about muscle, how having strong glutes is an indicator of longevity. Praise be to whoever and however, whomever you choose to worship, including yourself. And uh, Ben shares with me his optimized daily routine that helps keep him on top of his game. So kind of a laundry list of what we talk about. We talk about fat loss, uh, his own diet and fasting strategy, uh, heart rate variability, and why this is significant. Now, I, I will say this with a amount of pride. I have been talking about HRV since I have been in clinical practice now, uh, probably on about 10 years now, uh, really uh, focusing on HRV. We talk about glycemic variability, good and bad oils. And this may shock you because he talks about some of our beloved nut butters and nuts and seed oils. And then we get into non-native electromagnetic fields. We talk about 5G, we talk about sugar, and then we talk about chronic cardio. We talk about cold exposure and really debunking some of the muscle myths that exist for both men and women because it's really uh there there are there's a bit of um misunderstanding for both genders both sexes. I hope that you really enjoy this conversation and without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the one the only Ben Greenfield. is such Free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D R I N K L M N T dot com forward slash D R E S T I M A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Ben Greenfield, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you on here today.
1: Oh, I'm pretty happy to be here. I'm happy to be inside right now. We just got dumped on with like a blizzard of snow and ice last night. So, um, so I'm toasty warm talking nice. to you.
0: Awesome. We're going to talk about cold therapy today. So we'll, we'll shelf that. Maybe
1: I should be outside then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to talk, I'm so excited because we're going to be talking today about aging, longevity, energy, all of which thing, you know, the things I think you can go on, uh, you know, you can talk about for hours. I'm super excited to parse that apart. And we're going to talk about your book, uh, Boundless, which came out earlier this year. I have it for those of you watching on video. This is a Bible. Uh, it's like 600 pages. Um, but before we actually dive into like the geeky stuff, one of the things I actually loved about the book, and this is going to sound weird, but in, in preparing for our conversation, I loved the about me section. Like i read that a couple times before I actually got into it. And just for the listener, I'll give you like a little highlight. I won't read the whole thing, but graduated high school at 15 years old graduated university at 20 uh you were when when you graduated you were uh, working as a personal trainer a spinning instructor you were a strength and conditioning coach and i love this because in many ways it parallels um, my own story: I was in chiropractic college at 19, one of the you know youngest you know students in my class at the time, and I was like getting up at 5 a.m. doing the double step class because that's at the time step class is the thing, oh, and yeah. uh, and then getting back to uh, an 8 a.m. Uh, start class. So, I wanted to start off our conversation just by kind of looking at you. The he-
1: thing you forgot. Yeah. One thing. What I worked I the double step class. I worked in the mornings. Maybe I didn't put this in the book at a French bakery. That was across the street from the gym where oh, I was dude. a professional trainer. Yeah. And so I would like sell chocolate croissants and croque <laughs> and like super fatty lattes to people early, early in the morning. And it was a great business model. Cause then later on in the day, I'd get to, I get to you know, get higher
0: <laughs> you're like, I know up. how many lattes you have. We're gonna mm-hmm. do that's how many push-ups we're gonna do for you in the gym. Exactly. Yep. I love it. Um, so I was I was curious before we kind of get it, because I know you have like you are a super geek, like you have so much wisdom, but I was curious about you and some of your earlier influences, like what uh you know you are this insatiable sponge for being a high performer and the for the acquisition of knowledge and and achievement what were what what do you think drives you to do that what were I and mean, maybe we can look at some of your earlier influences like i have an idea of why i am a, why, why i am such a type a driven person but i'm curious about you what do you think what do you think drives you to do that
1: oh i've always been intensely curious i you know i i think i you know, I w- I was homeschooled, which I think fostered that sense of independence when it comes to learning, you know, just just going out and striking out on my own and engaging in uh, discovery of whatever it is that I happen to be passionate about at the time, which I think is kind of the cool part about, you know, homeschooling or, you know, with, with my own boys, I do a little bit more unschooling, which is, you know, more experiential and life-based education versus just like strict. Curriculum and and books. But, you know, my my parents were pretty flexible in terms of me being able to just go out and delve into whatever I wanted to delve into, whether it was, you know, chess or violin or fantasy fiction or anything else I happened to be interested in when I was a boy. But I was very self driven, um, almost kind of autodidactic in a sense. My father loved books. And so, you know, I, I witnessed him reading a lot, which probably influenced me. Um, my mother, of course, would just always encourage me to, to go out and discover and immerse myself in whatever it was that I was passionate about. And I guess I've just, I've kind of always carried that um, through life. You know, I I, I love to learn. I love to read. I mean, I'm happy as a clam with my nose in a book. And even when I was a little boy, you know, my, my parents, when they'd have you know, people over to visit would have to just like rip me out of my bedroom, you know, away from my books to just come out and look people in the eye and and shake their hands and say something nice to them. Or, you know, after which point I'd slip back into my room and just go, you know, read or learn more. So, you know, I think part of it honestly is, is not necessarily a nurture, but nature. I I just feel like, um, even when compared to the rest of my siblings, because I have two brothers and two sisters, I was always the kid who just like had my nose in a book. All the time, and I still do. I mean, like, you know, waiting in line at the grocery store or for an airport or, or for an airplane to leave or whatever. You know, I've always got a Kindle loaded up. I'm, you know, jamming out two pages here, three pages there, listening to an audio book, listening to a podcast. Um, so yeah, I just I love to learn, honestly.
0: I love that. And has that, do you find that that, that has changed? Are you still like that today? Has that changed? Or do you find that it grows the more that, you know, sometimes when I learn something, I'm like, God, the more I know, the less I realize that I know, like, do you find that that with like, you have, it grows, like your appetite grows the more that you learn or, or does that, or you sort of feel like you, Um, like, you know, enough now to sort of get by or to, to live a life that's going to be good.
1: Oh, it definitely grows. And of course, you know, the information age that has expanded by leaps and bounds with the internet and the fact that I have. You know the the entire library of Alexandria times a hundred on a smartphone in my pocket and you know in addition to that now that I'm kind of a little bit better known as like a you know a podcaster a guy who interviews authors an influencer you know inevitably like two or three books that I haven't even ordered arrive at my house each day <laughs> that I wouldn't have thought of reading but now that they're They're there. I think about reading them, which is honestly kind of annoying. Um, but yeah, like I'm bombarded with information all the time. So if anything, you know, I, I, I am increasing the amount of continuing education that I do. Um, as I as I age. And fortunately, you know, another part of this is, you know, as I built my business and surrounded myself with amazing people who can do all the stuff I used to do, like, you know, code my website and write newsletters and create email scripts and, you know, monitor customer messages and customer support, all those things that I just used to manage on my own. Now I have a whole team of people doing that, it's almost freed me up more to be able to do what I really want to do, which is You know, read and learn and research, then turn around and disseminate that content into, you know, understandable information that my audience can consume because I love, you know, I love to learn, but I also love to teach.
0: It's amazing. That's amazing. After my own heart because I love that as well. Like the less I the more it's like addition through subtraction, right? Like the more that you can get, you know, people handling the customer service or handling the things that you're really not good at, the better, you know, you can actually be of service to the world. So I love I love that. That was um what I thought you might say, but uh, I'm glad that glad that I asked. So, let's actually move into um you know, you mentioned your podcast, uh, one of the earlier, uh, podcasts really, I think one, maybe one of the first on fitness, uh, you're known as a thought leader in fitness, of course, body composition. And because of the, and you know, your, your competitions, which I share with you as well, I used to compete in figure, which most people don't know figures like not bodybuilding, not bikinis like in between. But, um, I wanted to, I wanted to start this conversation off with a conversation around fat loss, because I think that this is one of the most misunderstood things, both from the health industry, like, You know, air quotes experts, as well as lay people trying to understand um, fat loss. So let, and I think people conflate weight loss with fat loss. So I wanted to start off with um, maybe like a, you know, fat loss 101, you know, walk us through the mechanics of how we actually lose fat. I think that people, don't realize that we actually breathe a lot of it out. So let, let's actually, let's talk about how fat loss is actually achieved. And then I want to talk a little bit about some of the myths around fat cells, which you address in the book as well. Yeah.
1: Well, it's interesting that you bring up breathing it out. I mean, cause you, you don't actually breathe out like actual lipids, you know, in, in your breath, right. are, right. you know, fat cells, but you do breathe out carbon, you know, in the form of carbon dioxide and, you know, triglycerides and fatty acids, when you tap into them for energy are broken down into, to uh, among other things, carbon, which you which you actually do convert to CO two and breathe out. That doesn't mean by like breathing heavily throughout the day, which actually, from a from a stress standpoint, would probably not be a good idea. Versus like deep, relaxed nasal breathing during the day, that you're going to like lose more fat if you just like hyperventilate all day long. But you actually do breathe out the majority of the of the carbons, which is kind of interesting to think about. Um, that's why if you go to like an exercise physiology laboratory and you want to find out how much fat you're burning, they hook you up to a mask typically, so that's like the gold standard accurate measurement for, for testing of your fat burning capacity or how much fat you're burning at rest or during exercise. They'll put a mask on you and then measure the amount of carbon dioxide you produce and the amount of oxygen you consume. I used used to run a physiology lab, so I do this on people all the time. And you come up with what's called the respiratory quotient, which is essentially a reflection of how much fat versus how much carbohydrate you're burning. And you could do this at rest, laying on your back, or you could do it like on a treadmill during exercise. And the lower the RQ, the more fat that you are burning uh, in any given state and so it's kind of cool because you know as soon as somebody gets up from their resting state and you put the same mask on and put on a treadmill you can see the curve gets higher and higher and higher towards carbohydrate burning simply because fat you know it, it's it's a very uh, efficient fuel you have tens of thousands of calories of storage fat in your body even a very lean person has like 40,000 calories of storage fat on their body but the way that fat is broken down, which is via a process called beta oxidation in your body. It's a little bit of a a slow process. It produces a lot of ATP, a lot of energy currency, but it's hard to be able to engage in that process when you're exercising at very high intensities. Uh, Your body shifts to needing glucose, needing carbohydrates. That's one of the reasons people who are on like strict ketosis can have trouble during, say like a CrossFit workout, just because they don't have enough carbohydrates on board to fuel those, those very, very intense spurts of exercise. Uh, but basically, um, you're, you're going to primarily burn fat at rest or during, you know, low level aerobic exercise, such as walking and conversing and anything that's not kind of creating a burn in the muscles or causing you to breathe very heavily simply because it's, it's the, your body's preferred fuel for that slow, efficient pace. And the, Cool thing is by doing little tricks like, um, you know, waking up in the morning and doing an easy aerobic workout for like 20 to 45 minutes, you know, like a walk in the sunshine with your dog or an easy yoga session or something like that, especially if you're fasted, you can actually train yourself to improve your fat burning efficiency. And you'll see a lot of people who will do stuff like that, you know, in conjunction with limiting the amounts of sugars and starches that they consume, their respiratory quotient will drop because they're burning... More fat at rest, and then the cool thing that happens is if you're also doing things like aerobic exercise sessions in a, in a fasted state in the morning, you'll find that that RQ will also stay lower during exercise. I mean, you can train your body to burn more and more fats during exercise. And the other interesting thing is that as you're burning more and more fats, you're also kicking off more ketones. And so those ketones are also you know, really read, readily available and, and clean source of fuel for the brain, for the diaphragm, for the heart. That's why a lot of people who, again, limit sugars and starches or engage in intermittent fasting or you know, shift towards a higher healthy fat intake or, or enter into periods of of ketosis ketosis cyclically throughout the week, they they often do, you know, report better mental function or better ability to be able to engage in endurance activities or more stable energy levels, just because you're not getting a lot of the up and down blood sugar roller coaster rides that you get when you're relying upon carbohydrate as your primary fuel source. So it's really interesting. Like fat, fat's super efficient. You have tons of it. Um, you know, if, if you're really a hardcore exercise enthusiast, you still gotta, gotta have a decent amount of carbohydrates on board again for those, those higher intensity activities. Um, but you know, for, for a guy like me, you know, I, I kind of like to be a good fat burning machine, but I also like to exercise hard and swing kettlebells and play tennis and things like that. So my own diet, the way I set it up is I'll simply restrict carbohydrates all day long and not really any carbs. You know, I might have like some some bone broth or Coconut milk mixed with some some ketones or ice and stevia, and make like a nice nice kind of like higher fat, lower carb smoothie for breakfast. I might have some roasted vegetables or roasted, you know, lower starch compound like like pumpkin, say, for lunch with some fish or some meat or some leftovers from dinner. And then for dinner, you know, I will include like a hundred up to two hundred grams of carbohydrates in the form of you know sweet potatoes or yams or beets or a little red wine or dark chocolate. And Kind of tops off my energy levels for the next day's uh, workout. And so I'm pretty much kind of like in ketosis, fat burning all day long, giving myself some carbohydrates at the end of the day, uh, which briefly knocks me out of fat burning mode, but is also advantageous because it allows me to do things like. A hard workout the next day that would maintain, you know, muscle levels, aesthetics, fitness, et cetera. And then I rinse, wash, and repeat that throughout the week. And for somebody who really like digs the gym or likes being active or plays sports, it's kind of a cool scenario because you can have your cake and eat it too. You burn fats all day long. You top off your carb levels at the end of the day. And then you go straight back into fat burning mode after that. And the other thing that that I'll often incorporate in that scenario is I'll do like an, an overnight fast for 12 to 16 hours. And then at some point during that fasting period, like let's say I stop eating at 7 p.m. at night and then I'm not gonna have breakfast until like 10 a.m. the next day. Well, sometime between when I wake at 5.30 a.m. and when I have breakfast at 10 a.m., I'll do, like I mentioned, like a 20 to 45 minute walk in the sunshine or sauna session or yoga session in a fasted state. So I'm kind of training my body how to burn, how to burn more fats for fuel while I'm fasted. And that, that's actually a really good way to keep yourself from accumulating excess adipose tissue as well.
0: That's great. So, so great. And I, you know, in the book you talk about, you know, we won't go through all 16, but you talk about 16 reasons why uh, someone might not be burning fat. And I wanted to highlight a couple, a couple of really important ones that I think people maybe miss. Don't think about Uh, one is inflammation and the other one is glycemic variability. And you touched on, on GV just now uh, in terms of like how you structure your meals, but let's start with, let's start with chronic inflammation. And I think that what you know, users, uh, listeners of the podcast can appreciate, you know, an acute inflammatory episode. Like, you know, if, if it's a physical, if it's in the physical vertical, that might be like, you know, a fall off a ladder or you injure yourself at the gym or something. Um, you know, but and maybe like a, a that might be a distress, a you stress might be exercise. Um, but chronic inflammation, this sort of low grade subclinical inflammation can be the reason why for many, even though they might be practicing eat less, move more calories in, they're watching their calories versus the calories out, might like the, the, the weight might not be um, shifting for them. So can you, uh, can you outline for us what are some of the reasons why we might, or, or some of the ways in which we might be experiencing this subclinical, what I call chronic low-grade inflammation?
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that can cause that type of inflammation. You know, some things are very obvious, like, you know, inadequate recovery from an exercise session because you're just beating yourself up with weight training or say like a CrossFit workout or a high intensity interval training session every single day without properly recovering. You know, that's why I'm a huge fan of using some kind of a wearable, you know, like a like a ring or a wristband or, or something that will track what's called heart rate variability. Uh, which is essentially a really, really gold standard way to measure whether you are recovered. And even if you can't go out and say, get a blood test every day for, for a good inflammatory metric like HSCRP or fibrinogen or, or homocysteine or cytokines, you know, there's all these blood measurements you can get for inflammation, which, which is smart to do You know, on maybe like a quarterly basis to see how you're doing as far as your internal biology goes. You're not gonna go out and get a blood test every day, but the cool thing is that Uh, By tracking your HRV and ensuring that it stays relatively high on a consistent basis, you kind of have a corollary to... How recovered you are, and how high your inflammation possibly is. Um, just because HRV is a it's a really good metric for things like inflammation, stress, readiness to train, recovery, etc. So just over exercising would be one thing. You know, a lot a lot of healthy people that'd be one reason for inflammation. As a matter of fact, if you go in for like a blood test for inflammatory markers and you have exercised hard in the one or two days prior, many physicians, if they don't know that you've exercised hard, they'll actually think you're like high risk for a heart attack or have rampant inflammation when in fact all you've done is, is just done a hard exercise session which isn't bad but it but it can be if that's just like happening well, it's transiently
0: a inflammatory day. like it's transiently but, inflammatory to the body I mean, it's a you it's a good yeah. like yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah temporarily unless it's overdone you know yeah, yeah. and that's that's with in some people. Um, you know, and you mentioned glycemic variability and, you know, those, those frequent fluctuations in blood sugar can not only be detrimental to some of those fat-burning mechanisms that we talked about if you are attempting to increase your fat-burning efficiency simply because your body's going to burn sugar as a preferential fuel source if you're constantly, say, like, you know, snacking six to ten times a day, which, shockingly, some nutritionists and personal trainers will still tell people to do to, you know, keep their metabolism elevated and their energy levels topped off when, in fact... All that does is just, you know, spend your blood sugar levels on a roller coaster ride all day long, and kind of keeps you from tapping into fats as a fuel. But the other thing is that that constant surge in blood glucose can also be inflammatory from a from a vascular standpoint. And so, being cognizant of the the amount of time uh, during the day that you're eating and how frequent your snacking is, and then trying to focus on eating, just like honestly, I eat two or three times a day, and in between, it's just, you know. Water, gum, teas, coffees, things like that, that are relatively caloric. That's a really good way not only to maintain normalized glycemic variability, but also to keep your, your inflammation levels at bay. But really, I, I would say the biggest thing for inflammation. And for limiting the amount of, of fat that you're able to burn, the amount of fatty acids that your adipose tissue can release would be the consumption of seed-based oils. I mean, that that is probably the number one thing in our day and age, especially in the Western diet that is contributing to you know, a host of chronic disease factors, but particularly inflammation. And... You know, and and uh, you know, I'm I'm not just name, talking about
0: name some of them. Name some of the seed oils for the listeners:
1: olive oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, any seed or nut that has had to have been exposed to high pressure or high heat for extraction. You know, versus some of the oils that don't require that amount of heat. For extraction, such as uh, like extra virgin olive oil or avocado oil, or fats that are naturally stable or even solid at room temperature, like um, coconut oil or butter, uh, macadamia oil is another decent oil that doesn't require a lot of pressure or heat to extract it. It's pretty pretty stable, but a lot of the common uh, vegetable oils you know, not only are they going to contribute to inflammation because they're already rancid, they're already oxidized, they're already going to cause an influx of, of free radicals and reactive oxygen species, which contribute to inflammation, but they'll also, um, you know, this is really interesting, you know, linoleic acid particularly, which is a, a pretty significant component of vegetable oil, it can actually induce a little bit of um, almost like, like a highly insulin uh, sensitive state which uh, within fat cells, which you'd think would be a good thing. We always hear insulin sensitivity is good and insulin resistance is bad. But the problem is, if your fat cells are in an extremely insulin sensitive state, that means that they are equipped to take in energy. They're equipped to take in fat and not necessarily release it quite as readily. So it's really interesting in that the the regular consumption of vegetable oils actually make your fat cells less resistant to releasing fat. It it causes what's called fat cell hypertrophy. So you may have heard of muscle hypertrophy before where you're putting on muscle. Well, the consumption of vegetable oil actually puts you in a fat cell hypertrophy state where the fat cells get bigger and bigger because they're storing more and more uh, uh, fat. And so you have all these big, fluffy fat cells that are just soaking up energy because of the consumption of vegetable oil, putting them in an insulin-sensitive state. And so that's you know that, in addition to inflammation, kind of makes vegetable oils a, a one-two whammy. So yeah, over-exercising, over-snacking, or just rampant glycemic variability, uh, consumption of vegetable oils, those would be a few of the biggies. And then one, I'd be remiss not to mention, just because a lot of people don't talk about this, but it is something you have to consider. And that would be just, just the host of what would be what would be called non-native electromagnetic fields that we are bombarded with on a regular basis that we know can cause damage to cell membranes. Um, I'm talking about 5 g, Wi-Fi, even you know higher intensity Bluetooth to a certain extent, um, a lot of a lot of appliances, a lot of cell phone signals, all these things can cause, low grade inflammation and we can we we can't deny the fact that you know for for thousands and thousands of years humans were never exposed to these type of signals and now we're having to deal with them on a on a daily basis and so that's another thing to just be be aware of. I talk about that in my book. You know, I lay out all these different things like, you know, digital wall timers and household cleaning methods and and you know, cell phone protection, you know, methods and, and ways that you can kind of mitigate some of this non-native EMF exposure. But that's actually it's 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 pretty significant, especially if you're living in you know, an urban environment or you know, you're constantly tied to technology. It's it's just it's something to think about for sure, in addition to some of those dietary and movement factors.
0: Yeah, we have um we just moved into our, our new house and in our previous house we could never shut the Wi-Fi off because the alarm system was tied into the Wi-Fi. But this time oh, around yeah. we got smart. So we were like, we're gonna put a SIM card in the alarm system. So we shut off the Wi-Fi every single night now. And then that thing has its own like landline. So we can always- That's, that's
1: smart. Yeah, yeah. I, that, that's similar to what I. I just hard mine. Oh, I hardwired my whole house actually with just like CAT7 metal shielded ethernet cable. So there, there's no need for Wi-Fi. You just walk in any room, there's an ethernet port. And you just connect the, the cable into your computer, or I even have adapters that allow you to connect to your phone. So I don't have to have my phone on, you know, if I want to download yeah. something or text or whatever, I can have my phone connected to ethernet, which is amazing.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. I love that. And I love what you're saying about vegetable oils because I think, uh, and in the book, you actually say this I think that these can be actually more detrimental than sugar, right? And when we think about sugar, you know, it's we've kind of, when we think about the pendulum of, you know, vilified compounds, right? Like it was cholesterol used to be the big thing and fats were like the big no no. And it's almost like now the pendulum has swung the other way where sugar is the devil, insulin is the devil. And You know, while I'm a big advocate for a carbohydrate appropriate diet, I'm not saying that you should just have all the sugar, all the cakes, the cookies, the crackers. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. the vegetable oils, I grew like, this was a really good point in the book that you made where it, the vegetable oils are actually, you know, more oxidizable, more rancid and actually create, activate some of these like NRF2, like these inflammatory pathways in the body and sugar. Yes. Okay. We're going to have like this, po- you know, maybe have this postprandial rise in, in glucose for like two hours but then it's done, right? But it's the cognitive dissonance and like the beating yourself up and the, oh my God, I can't believe I had the piece of cake and like, I've ruined the thing. Uh, I've ruined my diet. I'm I'm like, there's something wrong with me. I think that that can actually cause more damage, right? Because now you're increasing cortisol and these counter-regulatory hormones uh, around sympathetic, you know, around the sympathetic...
1: I say in the book, you know, if you were, I think I'd give an analogy like this. If you were to offer me like a stick of cotton candy or like a, a corn dog at the fair, I'd totally choose the cotton candy 10 times out of 10 because, frankly, if I have to, I can actually burn that glucose, right? I, I could go out and exercise. I could actually burn that sugar, and it's going to not cause as much of an effect as... The rancid oils in something like a fried food like a right. corn dog because those are going to contribute to the fatty acids that comprise my cell membranes for the next few months right. and right. Uh, you know and also contribute to some of the inflammatory processes that we talked about and so yeah I mean if, if you had to choose you know the the lesser of two evils vegetable oil versus sugar it'd certainly be sugar simply because it can be burnt and in active individuals you know we know that you know, for me, you know, back in my Ironman training days when I'd consume like a fructose and maltodextrin 200 calorie gel (laughs) while hammering on my bike down the highway, like that's, that's not doing anything from a health stem, you know, maybe a little bit of gut fermentation or something like that. We all know endurance athletes fart a lot, but you know, in terms of like actual metabolic damage, my body's burning that, you know, Literally, you know, almost as soon as it comes in,
0: as you're drinking whereas, it. Yeah,
1: whereas, yeah. Yeah, whereas, if I were to be, you know, say, say, like, you know, eating a, a burger in that same situation, it'd be an entirely different metabolic scenario. And uh, you know, I should I should name one thing just because I I realize probably a lot of people listening in they are healthy, they're not out, you know, say like eating, um, you know, vegetable oil drenched pasta at P.F. Changs or something like that. But you know, the probably the number one thing. Uh, that, I, that I see in the diets of healthy people that contribute to the type of inflammation and resistance to fat loss brought on by these seed-based oils I'm talking about are the nut butters and the nuts. People eating you know, almonds, macadamia nuts, trail nuts, this healthy superfood nut butter that you got, um, all of that pretty much contributes to the same type of inflammation that we're talking about. And, it, you know, the more, the more research I've seen over the past few years on seed and nut-based oils, you know, I always used to have like a big, uh, canister of, of almond oil in the pantry that I could just slather on top of smoothies or, or, you know, spread on some type of meal. I'd even like, you know, I'd bake a pumpkin and, and put, you know, one of my favorite things to do is put like honey and sea salt and almond butter mm-hmm. on the pumpkin. And I... Like I rarely do that anymore. If I do it, it's like once a week that I might dip into some nut butter. And even then I know it's one of the worst things I could be putting into my body in terms of like a... Uh, a a very popular, quote, health, unquote, food that really is not that great for you. I I think most people would benefit a ton from just like trying to quit seed and nut butters for a month. You know, pay attention to your inflammation, pay attention to your weight, pay attention to your energy levels. Yeah. um, You know, I I think that's probably the biggest one in, in the health sector is nut and seed butters.
0: That's such a good, because those are still polyunsaturated fatty. They're still unstable, right? They don't have all, when well, you right. look at the molecular structure of it, there are, you know, there are double bonds. There are like, you know, I always talk about saturated fats, like coconut oil. It's like all the seats are taken up at the table no one can, el- no one, no one else can sit there. So you yeah, can't have all,
1: al- the calorically dense. They're highly palatable. One yeah. could argue that they're, that they could be worse than some ice creams, right? Like I'd, if, if you were to offer me almond butter versus say like coconut ice cream. I do the coconut ice cream just because it's it's not as inflammatory as the almond butter.
0: And you can squat after. (laughs) You can just... Like go around the blog, do some lunges and squats and then it's in your muscles. Yeah. Um, So let me, so let me, that actually brings me to my next question. So we've been talking about like glycemic variability, inflammation. Let's say someone does have poor glucose control, whether they have like metabolic syndrome, they're pre-diabetic or they've had a CGM attack and they're like, okay, like I can't, like my fasting blood glucose is a mess. Um, what would be some of your favorite ways to begin to improve that? So we talked, I, you know, I just kind of told you my little hack around Thanksgiving. Like we go for like, we do squats and lunges around. Around the block after like the big turkey and stuff. But what, what are some of your favorite ways to in general like not just over like a holiday, but you know, in terms of taking a longer lens to things in terms of improving GV?
1: Right. Well, in extreme cases, you know, we know from companies like Berta Health that are doing a lot of lifestyle and nutrition based interventions for, for, for type two diabetes. We know that you can see like pancreatic beta cell regeneration and restoration of the ability to produce insulin simply by adopting a higher fat lower carbohydrate diet. And I'm not saying that that diet works for everybody. You know, some people might have a, you know, an absent gallbladder or poor liver function, or, you know, something like the ApoE44 gene or familial hypercholesteremia or something else that predisposes them to not doing quite as well uh, with a high fat, low carb diet, but painting with a broad brush mitigation of carbohydrates and replacement of those carbohydrates with this type of stable fats that we were just talking about and a, a more kind of like mediterranean approach higher in omega-3 fatty acids um you know partially a, a slightly higher intake of like the stable saturated fats that that can be uh one really good way to to manage the glycemic variability but then from a from like a daily lifestyle standpoint low-level physical activity throughout the day i mean even something as simple as adopting a habit of walking for anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes after every meal. You know, I, I wear a continuous blood glucose monitor and that's fantastic for controlling postprandial glycemic variability, um, strength training because muscle is actually, it's a disposal storehouse for glucose and just sucks it up very readily strength training. And particularly timing your strength training prior to either your higher calorie or higher carbohydrate meal of the day. You know, for me. That means that if I'm having dinner at 7 p.m., I'll usually time my strength training workout, even though it'd be more convenient to do it in the morning. I'll usually do like my strength and my high-intensity interval workout sometime between 4 and 7 p.m. because it renders me extremely insulin-sensitive to a lot of those carbohydrates I'd be consuming. It upregulates a lot of the glucose transporters that will just deliver those straight into the muscles. So doing something like strength training, you know, if you're going to use that approach I, I described earlier... You know, saving a lot of your carbohydrates for the end of the day, or you know, maybe dinner is a more social meal for you. Maybe you have a family and you have family dinners. You know, I know a lot of people. It's just dinner is the higher calorie, or or the meal of the day that might include a little bit more fluctuation in terms of macronutrients. You know, doing something like a late in the day strength training session or high intensity interval training session, that could be another cool strategy. Um, you know, speaking of cool, you know, wear, wearing wearing a CGM, a continuous blood glucose monitor, for years. I have found the number one thing above anything else that controls my blood glucose extremely well for the entire day. I've even seen values where I've been at 50 the whole day is a really good cold protocol at the beginning of the day. Like be a 5 minute cold shower, it could be a cold soak, it could be um, dipping into a cold like lake or river or ocean. I have many clients uh, who, you know, who have come to me who and, and their main focus is the metabolic health and they're doing like three cold showers a day. You know, we'll do one in the morning one in the evening, one at some point, kind of time before or after a workout. And, you know, exposure to cold is, you know, in, in my opinion, one of the most underestimated and, um, and, and, and and least talked about ways, but yet most powerful ways to control glycemic variability, just like being cold. And you, know, you also see a shifting of, of your white storage adipose tissue into metabolically active brown fat which is also great, you know, just, just because you need that brown fat to generate heat to keep you warm, which is why your body makes it after you've been doing cold thermogenesis. But man, some type of cold protocol is amazing. And it's even better if you time it, like I mentioned, when you're in that fast and stay, I talk about this in the book about how one of the best ways to stay lean year round is doing overnight intermittent fast anywhere from 12 to 16 hours, kind of closer to 12 for females, closer to 16 for males, because females tend to get a little bit more endocrine disruption in response to the longer intermittent fasts and then at some point during that window do like 20 to 45 minutes of aerobic exercise and finish up with like a 5 minute cold shower or a 5 minute cold soak and you know then go forth and you know have your breakfast in the next couple hours etc but man that that cold exposure on a daily basis is fantastic for controlling blood glucose fluctuations.
0: That's great. And I live I live on the East Coast. I'm in Toronto. So we get winter, like we get winter, okay. winter. So that's such yeah. a great thing for us to, like I like to do my workout in the morning. So to kind of go, I actually take the boys, My, I, I, I'm i homeschooling my boys right now. So I'll do my workout early in the morning and then I'll take them for, you know, what. right now it's a bike ride, but in the winter time, it'll be like, you know, through the snow and we're like up and down. So that's like a really nice, really nice tip too. Cause I think a lot of people, as the weather gets cooler, people tend to hibernate, right? Like we act like babies and we stay inside and, you know, doing, making yourself uncomfortable, I think is actually the theme there. Like when, and we'll talk about, you know, I want to talk about sirtuin activation and NAD and all these different things with you. But I think that one of the, one of the, Keys, I think in general, like if you are uncomfortable, like in, in the, in terms of cold, like if you're just shivering a little bit, you're doing it right. Like you're activating your sirtuins, the mitochondrial biogenesis, helping with your circadian biology, all of those things, the bat to the, like the, the brown adipose tissue uh, conversion from, from white um, uh, adipose tissue, I think is all, all super valuable as well.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Let's let's touch on chronic cardio. Um, because I have women who come to me for a lot of times it's weight loss and they'll say, but I'm working out. And you know, you dig deeper and it's like, well, I'm doing five spin classes a week uh or five high intensity interval training things a week. And, you know, they're of course they're waking up early to do it, right? So we know that women have longer sleep cycles than men. So they're waking up at 5 a.m. to get into the spin class. And, you know, and then when you know, you kind of dig a little deeper, there's no resistance training happening, all the and then of course, or sex hormones are like a gong show. So um, understanding that, and and I know that there's a huge debate around like what kind of cardio is the best and understanding that it's much more nuanced than steady state cardio good or steady state cardio bad. um, let's, Let's just first talk about the implication of doing longer, like too much cardio. So it's like chronic cardio and why that tends to downregulate uh, muscle formation and tends to upregulate uh, our body fat?
1: You know, I, I like to look at things from a pure physiological standpoint. And, you know, we we see chronic cardio vilified all the time. It's going to make you fat. It causes you to hang on to cortisol, which is going to be catabolic and wear away muscle. And, you know, like you mentioned, a lot of times you're waking up early to do it and you got the five spin classes a week, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's kind of true and, and, and kind of not. Um, so here's the deal. You can't do too much chronic cardio if you're doing the right type of cardio. Um, it's just fine. The human body is, is designed to be a fat-burning endurance machine. We can outrun or out-distance out any animal on the face of the planet if we were, you know, assigned to go from point A to point B, say three thousand miles. We, we, human beings, are incredibly efficient at burning fat and at moving long distances at a low pace. And we see our hunter-gatherer ancestors. We see a variety of indigenous tribes, you know, moving, hunting. Gathering, gardening, constantly walking, bending, lifting, and just engaged in this low-level physical activity all day long. I mean, even right now while I'm talking to you, anybody watching the video can see I'm walking on a treadmill, and I'll often do this—you know, walking on a treadmill or walking outside, having consultations with people, doing podcast recordings, etc. You know, sometimes I'll walk eight to ten miles a day, sometimes for for you know a week in a row. And yet, my inflammation is extremely low. My cortisol is just fine. And that's because you have to define what you mean when you vilify a certain form of cardio. So, Back to physiology, we were talking about the respiratory quotient and the fact that you can measure the amount of carbohydrate burnt during exercise, the amount of fat burnt during exercise. You get to a certain intensity at which you cross what is called your aerobic threshold. You begin to shift into carbohydrate utilization. This is when the legs might start to burn a little bit, you start to breathe a little bit harder. It becomes more difficult to carry on a conversation, et cetera. And when you're shifting into that amount of carbohydrate utilization, from an endocrine standpoint, that's also when you begin to see a bigger surge in cortisol. That's when you begin to see the body begin to break down some amount of muscle to free up those amino acids as an alternate fuel source so that you you conserve some of that glycogen as, as almost like a survival mechanism. That's when you begin to see a little bit more muscle fiber tearing and the requirement for longer recovery periods. That's the type of cardio that are these, you know, people out on their 1-hour lunchtime run with the grumpy look on their face, the triathletes doing a swim, a bike and a run all in one day, but not a swim, a bike and a run that reflects the intensity that our ancestors would have engaged in when gardening or hunting during the day, but instead something higher than that, something with that that slight burn, something with that that requirement to really be like focused and, and in the zone and you know, I hunt, I bow hunt. And you know, when I go out for like a five day hunt, sure. There's a couple of times when I'm like climbing a hill, or maybe I see an elk, you know, two miles away with, with my scope and I got to cover a lot of territory pretty fast to get to where they're going that I probably do cross into that threshold zone of like the, the more uh, damaging form of chronic cardio, if that were done on a repetitive basis. But frankly, most people I find, um, aside from that small subset of the population that's just obsessed with and addicted to cardio, the triathletes, the marathoners, the, you know, the, the, well, it seems I don't want to, um, It's the
0: dopamine be- insufficient type A achievers.
1: Right. <laughs> right. And I don't want to stereotype too much, but yeah. I tend to see men do this more than men, you know, like the hour and a half long elliptical trainer sessions. Yeah. The long
0: yeah. Training.
1: Yeah. Or a- women are just, they're, they're innately better at endurance than men. Um, and, and, and drawn to it a little bit more and sometimes, you know, a little bit nervous around like the heavy weights and some of the things that would actually be pretty beneficial for them to be doing. But ultimately, uh, what I find aside from that subset of the population is a lot of people, they don't move enough. If you actually look at their step count, they're doing a hard workout at, you know, 5am CrossFit workout or whatever. And then they're kind of congratulating themselves, slapping themselves on the back and either over-consuming calories the rest of the day or just like sitting a lot of the day because they've They've done their workout, bro. And you know what I have most of my clients do is they shoot for the same as me, at least ten thousand, and preferably fifteen thousand steps a day. Um, that's just constant. Take all your phone calls while you're walking. Get a treadmill workstation. Move, move, move. Take the stairs. Stop for little Pomodoro breaks of jumping jacks, and just basically simulate. Even if you're in like an office or a cubicle or a you know what would traditionally be a sedentary setting, that low level physical activity throughout the day. That's great, especially when paired with a few strength training sessions a week that are hard and heavy, a few high intensity interval training sessions during the week that aren't long, like 20 minutes that have a few exhausting intervals thrown in. And then the chronic cardio, like you do not need much of that at all. Um, unless you've chosen that you want to do an Ironman triathlon or a marathon or something like that, and then you're just gonna have to bite the bullet and do it. But don't fool yourself into thinking that's a way to achieve good body composition or lose weight. It's a way to get well, you already described Stephanie, which is cortisol, muscle loss, uh holding on to fat, and you know, general inflammation, water retention, bloating, etc. cetera. So it depends how you define cardio. I'm a huge fan of chronic cardio all day long. That is below aerobic threshold. Once you get above aerobic threshold, it's pretty rare that that should be the type of exercise that you're choosing for aesthetics and body composition versus high intensity interval training and weight training. Again, unless your goals are performance related like a triathlon or a, or a marathon or something like that.
0: Well, what you're describing is neat, right? It's non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is what we all should be ascribing to. It's much more low level. You know, I was talking to uh, Dallas Hartwig and we were talking about this idea of becoming this movement. We've gone from being movement generalists to being movement specialists. It's like the CrossFit, the spin class, the... Highly specific movements that we do once, you know, maybe it's three, four times a week, and then we sit all day long. Versus get like walking, like you are. I'm, I'm actually, for the record, I'm standing on my walking treadmill right now, but I do it for the audio, so I usually am walking as well. I'm just not quite at your level, but um, this idea of you know, I remember one of my mentors saying that, you know, this 10K, like you get a Fitbit or you get a wearable or whatever. And the goal is 10,000 steps, but that's like a drop in the bucket in terms of what our ancestors used to do. They used to our foremothers and our forefathers, it was like 15K, 20K, 25K a day of all just low level, as you were saying, sub aerobic threshold where you're just, you can walk all day long and you can do that all day, every day on repeat, but you can't go at these higher levels all the time to drive, like, cause you're gonna be driving the cortisol and all these different, uh, all these different things. Yeah, You're right.
1: I mean, it's, it's nuts. Like, like when I talk to people, let, let's say I'm, I'm with a group of folks and, and we're traveling and you know, this happened the other day. We we had an Airbnb and there's a Whole Foods, like two and a half miles away. I'm like, let's go get groceries. Everybody gets ready to go pile in the car. I'm like, dude, it's two and a half miles. We just yeah, walk, yeah. Yeah, Europe, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, have a conversation or listen to an audio book or whatever. And that's just a foreign thought to a lot of people. I mean, I would even go so far as to say that if your health is one of your priorities in life, you should even, if you have the option, try to choose either residence or a job that allows you to commute via bicycle or by walking to your job each day versus sitting for an hour in your car, you know, there and back sometimes more than that for 40 years of your life that adds up versus just being able to walk to work, bike to work, move. You know, that's, that's the way that we're built and and intended to be, to be living.
0: Amen. Let, let's talk a little bit about muscles. we were talking about cardio. Um, I want to debunk some myths around muscles. And I think it's a little different for men and women. I often, when I when I speak to men, it's like more muscle equals better. And for women, it tends to be like, oh, I don't want to bulk, which is like, I hate that word. Like, I just want to look toned, which means like, I mean, I don't know what that, I mean, I think about tone in terms of sympathetic and parasympathetic tone, in terms of nervous system tone, that's actually a thing. But being toned in fitness, like this is a word that gets thrown around. It doesn't mean anything. So let's talk about... um why bigger muscles for men are not always uh, functional and why it's really important for both men and women to be lifting heavy stuff. And it's actually the quality of the muscle uh, that works. Let's talk a little bit about that.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, and and me being a former bodybuilder, I certainly had to deal with this. Uh, the, The fact that a large amount of muscle not only requires more endogenous antioxidant production to quell a lot of the free radicals that can be produced by excess muscle, especially excess muscle, it's all, you know, it's just for show, not necessarily for go. And from an evolutionary standpoint, it doesn't even make sense. Like why you'd have all that extra calorie consuming muscle in your body. They aren't necessarily using for anything. You got to carry it. You got to cool it. And uh, furthermore, we see a lot of issues, especially amongst folks like bodybuilders in terms of like cardiomegaly, excess cardiac stress, excess, you know, ventricular hypertrophy, uh, joint issues, a lot of the stuff that goes hand in hand, with a level of muscle that goes above and beyond what you'd naturally be able to maintain without spending you know, an hour to two hours in a gym every day and eating an excess surplus of calories, especially protein, to be able to feed that muscle. And when you look at longevity parameters, uh, particularly in the book, I get into a lot of studies done on telomere length and on inflammation in terms of, of people who weight train, what you find is that the... The longer living populations, or the people with with the with the slower rate of telomere shortening, which is a, a corollary of excessive aging, um, you'll or, or really a, a, a decreased rate of telomere shortening would be a corollary of of, of uh, increase um, uh, longevity. Uh, what you see is it's the the very fast twitch, powerful, functional, um, small, compact muscle fibers that seem to impart the greatest longevity benefit. So it's not. The amount of muscle, it's how fast the muscle can use, how functional it is. Um, And also arguably, and I recently interviewed author Joel Green about this, the amount of like cross-linking and adhesions within that muscle tissue, dictating that the best way to really train your body from a strength training standpoint is uh, a couple of times a week, do like a heavier strength training session, like a full body, let's say like a, a five by five up to a five by 10 deadlift, squat, overhead press. Maybe maybe a clean if you can do some power type of exercises and a, let's say a shoulder press or a row, and then a couple of times a week do the more powerful activities that are lighter in weight like you know burpees, lunge jumps, uh, kettlebell work, even sports like tennis or basketball or anything relatively uh, explosive, and then finally you know and I'm just I'm not talking about the the entire exercise scenario because I got you know, a chapter in the book where I just lay everything out from, you know, mitochondria to VO2 max, to lactic acid tolerance and beyond. But just speaking from a pure muscle standpoint, those couple of heavy strength training sessions a week, those couple of lighter, powerful sessions each week, and then addressing the kind of the fact that muscle grows older, faster when it has more cross-linking and adhesions in it, doing like 10 to 15 minutes every day, if you can carve out the time of foam rolling, mobility work, work in a deep tissue massage, you know, one to you know, one to two times a month if you can, or, you know, I I try to get one on a weekly basis. I just have a therapist come to my house in the evening and, and work on me. And I, you know, I, that sounds like something some rich effort would do, you know, who's having a massage therapist come to your house all the time. But all, I honestly just like, I paid for massage like a year in advance. So I actually get pretty affordable massage.
0: Oh, well but now I, with COVID, that's actually how they're working because all the clinics are closed. So they're coming to, I mean, you've got to wear, I mean, at least in Ontario, you got to wear a mask, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we have the same thing too. And that's actually how they're still staying in business. So it's not just right. for rich, whatever. It's actually how they're, how we're supporting local businesses right now. As right.
1: Well. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I put a massage that was like 1500 bucks at the beginning of the year. And that, that gets me through like the summer, which yeah. is amazing. Massage every week. So so basically, yeah, strength training, a couple times a week powerful, lighter training a couple times a week, and then deep tissue work. Really, that's how you maintain young, vibrant muscle that imparts longevity versus the old-school bodybuilder-esque approach, which is time-consuming, damaging to the body, requires more antioxidants, takes a lot of energy to carry and cool, and is largely not functional nor associated with longevity. And frankly... I mean, really it's kind of silly too because it's not like most people don't even consider that attractive anymore. Like that's still like a relic of like the you know the 80s. Right.
0: Right. It's in a very niche. It's still very knee or very niche. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It still shocks me the number of dudes that think that women actually think that it's attractive when you know you you can't get your your arms any closer, you know, to your armpits. <laughs> your biceps are so big. I mean, it's just
0: it's And they have chicken legs. They always have chicken legs. They have like huge yeah. shoulders, biceps, and then they got a little itty bitty calves as well.
1: Yeah, I get it. My legs take a lot more mental fortitude to train. And yeah. I, I'm gonna get beat up by a bunch of bodybuilder bros now, but uh a lot like um <laughs> it's kind of funny, a lot a lot of the big buff bro guys that I know can't don't have the the neuromuscular or capacity to handle like an ice bath. And those are the same type of guys that don't train their legs.
0: Right. Right. But the, when we're thinking about, when we're thinking about building muscle, whether it's a female or a male, the point is we want to work, is it, is the point to work the muscle to exhaustion? I mean, there's a different, there's like many different roads to Rome. Like you can do the super slow, you can do the high intensity, the explosive type of stuff. You can do high reps, low weights. Like I remember uh even just compete. I mean, I was at the time I was, you know, the week before like peak week, right before the show, it was like, I was, you know, water depleted and, you know, calorie depleted. And so I did like high reps, low weight, just so I can get like the mechanical stimulus and like get a little bit of a, a yeah. pump in there. Is the point that the muscle needs to be worked to exhaustion, like no, no matter which, you know, way you do it? Like what's the, how do we build muscle?
1: Yeah. Some of the newer research by Brand Schoenfeld and others shows that you don't necessarily have to go to exhaustion, that it's more the time under tension. Yeah. Um, And yeah, but, but still, I would say that from a pure, like minimal effective dose and time management standpoint, one single set to exhaustion actually gets you similar results as like three to five sets that don't take you to exhaustion. If you just like the gym and it's your happy place and like you're moving meditation or whatever, sure. You could do like, you know, five sets of 10 of five different full body exercises. But if you just, if you just want the functional muscle and want to get in and get out, one single set to exhaustion, like a 10 to 20 minute workout can actually get you some pretty impressive parallels to multiple sets that might not go to exhaustion. So as you alluded to, there's kind of more than one way to to skin the cat. So
0: yeah, I love his work. Actually, I'd love to have him on the podcast. He talks about like the 10 sets per week when we're thinking about hypertrophy, like a minimum of 10 sets per week. And you can divide that in any number of ways, right? It could be one set, like one session with 10 sets. It could be, you know, whatever, two, five sessions with two, whatever, whatever. Right. So it's very, his, his stuff is really interesting. I love it. And the other, the other thing I wanted to bring up, which you talked about in the book, and I love, I I wanted to make sure that we cover this is glutes. Like our glutes predict longevity. And I wanted to bring this up for the ladies, because there's going to be ladies that are listening. All my ladies that are listening are going amazing. I got a big booty. Like I'm going to live a long time, but the point, (laughs) the point is not just to have a big butt, even though that's a good thing, but it's to prevent, it's to make sure that the glutes have power, right. It's to make sure like if you were at a steakhouse, you know, they would talk about the marbling of the meat. We don't want that in the human form. We don't want this fatty infiltration of like, we want glutes. We want strong, powerful, explosive extensors, right? Glutes are part of the extensor uh, group, um, are part of the extensor group. Uh, but can you speak to a little bit about how glutes predict longevity and why it's important that we're not getting this like fatty infiltration of the muscle as we age?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've only got about three or four minutes left, but I'll, I'll, address this pretty quickly. And really, I mean, like Brett Contreras just came out with his book, the glute lab, which in my opinion is the best glute training books that exists. And as I allude to in my book, there's a variety of physical performance indicators that correlate to longevity. Walking speed is one grip. Strength is one, mm-hmm. uh, strength or glute activation is another. And, um, you know, it, it, it uh, it again returns to the functional nature of the hip extensors themselves and I'm a huge fan of of hip bridges. I'm a huge fan of even something like Kegel exercises when you're on an airplane or a train in which you're co-contracting the glutes along with the pelvic musculature. Um, I'm uh, I'm a big fan of even using things like electrical muscle stimulation for people who have forgotten how to use their glutes to kind of turn them back on during exercise. And you know, I I dealt with that when I was coming on my triathlon days. I use electrical muscle stimulation to retrain myself how to use my glutes. And now when I do things like hip thrusters, et cetera, I can feel those glutes contracting a lot more readily. I mean, I'll... I'll share with you this is just kind of like a a fun little anecdote and maybe a maybe a, a trick that people can use as, as, a, as a parting gift for me. Um, so I have a, a vibration training platform and those are actually not that expensive. One thing they're known to do is allow you to recruit more musculature for whatever exercise you're doing on it due to the oscillation of the vibrating device. And like my top exercise that I do for my glutes, and I'll just do this as a finisher for one of my strength training workouts. I'll do like three sets of these or one set for two minutes to failure. As I plant both heels on a vibration training platform, and I'll do a set of hip thrusters or hip bridges to exhaustion. Just laying on my back, both heels on the vibration platform, flip it on, you know, for one or two minutes, and then just do super slow focused hip thrusters. And I, I can get as much of like a glute burn and glute activation from that as I can from using like, you know, one of Brett Contreras's glute thrust machines with a whole barbell loaded up on my hips. So that's that's one of my top ways to train my glutes. Um, in addition to um, sex, I mean, honestly, sex is not only is it fun and enjoyable, but it's one of the, one of the best ways to train your glutes just because there's so, so much thrusting, so much squeezing, so much contracting, probably that and my hip bridges are my, my two top glute training methods.
0: And honestly, sex keeps you young, man. Like if you can continue to send, like you talk about being reproductively useful, like, you know, tricking your biology into talking like staying reproductively useful. And we talk about this on the podcast a lot, ladies, it's all about as many orgasms as you can get in terms of resetting the hormones and helping with all your vitals. We've been talking about, you know, muscle and body composition here, but, heart rate and blood pressure and oxygenation, perfusion and activation in the motor cortex, like sexes. I mean, you can talk about all those things sort of like once or twice removed, but it's actually like one of the best things that you can do for your health is being engaging in a regular sex life. Um, whether you have a partner or you just, you know, you have a toy and you call it your partner and you get after it. Right. So I'm glad that, glad that you brought that up. Um, yep, so just, just to respect your time here, uh, I wanted to just maybe pull all this together. I'm gonna have to get you back on the podcast because I still want to talk to you about uh stacks and some other the fun stuff in your book. But what's that?
1: I wish I had more time.
0: Yeah, no, no worries. We'll just get you back for round two. But how can, like, just how, how do you incorporate this? Like, give me like what Ben Greenfield does, you know, in your everyday life. And you can assume, assume that you're home, you're not traveling. Cause I know that that's like a different beast, but how do you incorporate, is it like seasonal eating, you know, workouts, maybe doubling down on friendships? Like, tell me how you incorporate some of the things that you've talked about in boundless and some of the things that we've spoken about today in terms of making this actionable for, for our listeners.
1: Uh, I only have about 30 seconds, but here we go. Um, Mm -hmm. basically I, every Sunday evening map out my week, make sure I know, uh, what type of workout or movement session that I'm going to be doing each day, uh, generally know what the meals are going to be. And I eat the same thing typically for breakfast and for lunch every day anyways. And then we, we kind of have the same type of macronutrient profile for, for dinners. Um, I, I'm a creature of ritual routine and habit. I take it on the road and at home meditation, journaling, gratitude, prayer, and reading my Bible in the morning, uh, carve out enough time for me time, which would be about anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes for any additional physical activity or just taking care of my body, uh, leap into work. I work extremely hard with no distractions, typically from about, uh, around nine 30 until around two 30. I stop for lunch. Um, After lunch, I take a quick nap, go back and do all my reactive work, like putting out email fires and phone calls and stuff like that. And then uh, once I finish all of that, I'll hop into a pre-dinner workout. And then starting about 7 p.m., it's, it's highly protected family time, family dinner, family meditation, family journeying, music, uh, sometimes family tennis or another family outing. And uh, you know, then I get up in the morning and rinse, wash, and repeat. But it's just about creating habits and rituals and routines. And I, I have a whole chapter of that in the book about how exactly I, I set that all up.
0: Awesome. We will have all of these links uh, in the show notes. I just wanted to thank you so much for your time and just plug quickly, plug your podcast where people can interact with you uh, if they want to find out more.
1: Yeah, just go to uh, bengreenfieldfitness.com and uh, all my stuff is there.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure.
1: Cool. Thanks, Stephanie.
0: I hope that you found this conversation enlightening and fun. It's always fun to talk to Ben. Uh, he's very, very charismatic, very animated, and I enjoyed our conversation very much. And he and I talk a lot about very similar concepts in terms of fat loss, in terms of chronic low-grade inflammation, in terms of cardio and muscle building. So it was a real treat to be able to speak with him. You'll also find if you want to do a deeper dive on some of these topics, you can go through some of the geeky magics that I have pre- produced on uh, steady state cardio, on fat loss, and on some of the hormones. So in particular, C is for cortisol is going to do... I think will serve you really well there as well. And we'll put the links for those in the show notes. Now, if you have listened this far in the podcast, you are must Special one. You are my special Betty. And I always like to leave little Easter eggs uh, in these outros because, you know, for you to commit to completing the podcast is really, really important to me. So I wanted to thank you for that. And if you are finding this podcast valuable, I have a little ask of you, if I may, for you to rate the podcast on iTunes or rate it on Spotify or Google or wherever you listen to the pod. It helps more Bettys find the podcast and then we can expand and we can expand our Betty army and we can help more women make better decisions for their health. So if you feel so inclined to do so, a five-star rating or even better, a review, and I would love to be able to read it out at the next episode that we have. So I hope you have a wonderful week, Betty. I hope you found this really useful, and we will see you real soon. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's geeky magic carpet ride with me, visit BetterShow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only And the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship form, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Asuma and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.